Then I saw, <coughs> excuse me, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the new throne said, See, I am making all things new. So in lieu of Jonah being here in person, we have a recorded sermon to share. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah P. Overton. I am one of your pastors here at Zao. I'm so bummed that I can't be with you in person, those of you who are in person this morning. Um, I'm doing some traveling for uh, Zao, actually. So uh, keep me in prayer as I uh, do the work of public theology at the Wild Goose Festival. But uh, we are in bonus uh, rounds, bonus weeks of the series Lies I Heard in Church. We were going to end it last week when we talked about the lie that too many of us heard, you are going to hell, where we debunked some of that theology around hell. But in response to that week, I've gotten a lot of energy being like, all right, so if not that, then what? So we are extending our Lies series to talk about what comes on the other side of this life. So if we don't have to live in fear of eternal torment in hell, then what is on the other side of this life? There have been a lot of theologies as well about heaven. And while it may seem like the harmful theologies of hell that we've had to deconstruct are, are just completely worlds apart from the theologies of heaven, that the heaven stuff is really harmless. Actually, there are some pretty harmful aspects of the way that a lot of modern Christianity and sort of pop culture in general talks about and conceptualizes heaven. Now, some of you are on TikTok or Instagram Reels a lot. You may have heard the sound that asks, can we skip to the good part? And on Reels, a lot of times people do. They just edit their life into kind of fast forward or just jumping right to whatever it was, the thing that they wanted, that they hoped for. And we know that through movie magic, we get to go on this journey with them in a matter of seconds, but that they lived through a whole process, whatever it was that they were waiting for, longing for all of uh, the work that went into the moments in between, maybe the grief, the suffering, the waiting, the impatience. And so we get to skip over all of that and just jump to whatever feels good and pleasurable, whatever feels like an immediate gratification of our longing. 
And that's kind of what reels are for, right? Like, that's why we do that. And we do that same project when we often fantasize about heaven. We say, hey, can we just skip to the good part? And this is actually one of the reasons that, uh, that the modern American church can sort of fall into being a bit of a death cult when you really think about it. The denigration of this life and the hope in the life to come can easily become, can we just skip to the good part? Like, it's actually not that far away from saying, like, why don't we just drink the Kool-Aid? Why don't we just wake up in heaven tomorrow? And so there are some harmful theologies that can happen around heaven. I remember being in a high school youth group conversation. We were asked to imagine what heaven was like. And one of my classmates, Matt, who likes to play basketball and hang out, was like, my heaven, what I think heaven is, is playing basketball all day with my best friends. And right after, like, I score the winning basket, my grandma walks outside with a, with a sheet of fresh-baked cookies for all of us. And all I could think was, all right, Maddie, I bet that's not your grandma's version of heaven. Which, like, you know, whatever. Maybe it is. Maybe grandma just really wants to bake cookies for Maddie and his friends all day. Maybe that's the sum total of her personality. Maybe Maddie did not go on to have any other ambitions or joys in his life. I think he did. I think his life got more complex after high school. But I think that what we think about anytime we have a snapshot of our idea of what heaven is like, we often reduce it to what feels pleasurable to us as individuals in any isolated given moment of our lives. And not only does it not honor the fullness of other people, but it doesn't really even honor our fullness as well. I bet Maddie, as he's grown up, has different fantasies of heaven now. But I wonder if it's possible for any single one of us to imagine a heaven that could account for the fullness of all people. I think that our personal fantasies actually can't comprehend what comes in the next life, what could be perfection, because our limited, finite selves are sort of necessarily self-centered. And so I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus didn't actually talk a whole lot, explain a whole lot about what's coming in the life to come. Because in this life, as we are in our finite bodies and finite lives, we actually can't comprehend the infinity of what healing a whole creation would look like. And this is actually one of the major uh, pivot points that we need to make when we're thinking and talking about heaven. Heaven is not your personal salvation. Heaven, or the life to come, the promise of salvation, is the salvation, the redemption, the, the connection of all creation. This is what solidarity means in eternity. No one is free until we're all free. No one is liberated until we're all liberated. No one is redeemed until we're all redeemed. So we actually can't have a personal heaven. We can't have an individual fantasy of heaven because that misses the mark entirely. It's not what the end of things is for, any one isolated piece by itself. The end of things is about bringing everything together in restoration. So where did this idea of the individual personal salvation with the key to the mansion and 
personal heaping individual rewards, where did that come from and what does it appeal to in each of us? The beautiful part of this, the longing that is real in us that this lie kind of hinges on is hope. It is hope for liberation. It is the longing for peace, for ease in the midst of a world where there is a lot of pain, a lot of struggle, a lot of oppression. And so I don't want to completely throw away our hopes of a beautiful, powerful afterlife. In fact, I want to say yes and. Yes, we get a beautiful, powerful afterlife. And it is more. It is more than our individual selves could imagine. It's more than the best afternoon of basketball or the greatest tasting, tasting chocolate chip cookie you could ever eat. It is more than pleasure. But pleasure is often all that we can comprehend, especially when life is painful. And so we contrast our existing life, which includes pain and loss and grief, and we say what comes on the other side must be pleasure, must be pleasure without pain, must be fullness without loss or grief. But actually, the healing that is required for all creation requires that we move through loss and grief. When we talk about heaven as though it is this other place that we get to go to once we die, we abandon our earthly bodies, our souls are swept up into this other place, another element of this lie is that it completely diminishes this life. This life becomes a precursor, or at worst, a test, about whether we can get in to the good part, saying that heaven is actually what's worthwhile, actually diminishes life. And it's wild because so many of the places that we are told care about the sanctity of life actually are really denigrating it most frequently when they're talking about the life to come, when they're talking about getting into heaven. Because if this life is merely a test of our worthiness, then like that's not really the gift that God claims it is for us. That's not the holy thing that we talk about life as. So if we want to honor the goodness of life, we can't diminish it by saying, well, this is the bad part. And just wait till we get to the good part. So we have to understand what God is doing here and now in our lives that is leading into the life that is to come. But what's the biggest danger of these lies about heaven? It's not just the diminishing of this life. It's actually that this idea, this fantasy of a personal reward in contrast to a personal punishment can lead to some really, really abusive and controlling politics. You may be noticing a theme in these lies that we've heard in church, that a lot of them end up being around control and controlling other people's behavior, gatekeeping, and honestly, in a lot of ways, creating a sense of terror in the body that can be manipulated. This danger around fantasies of heaven, you may think, like, how is promising heaven going to control people on this earth? Well, all the ways that we talk about it are about who gets in and who doesn't. And so there are these, these fears that are instilled in people. Will I get that payoff? Will I get that reward? And so that's kind of the stick, right? What if I don't get it? But it's also the carrot. If you do exactly as I tell you, you'll get your reward later. Of course there's suffering in this life. Don't worry about it. You're not going to have suffering in heaven. 
One of the most famous examples, one of the most egregious examples, one of the most violent examples of that theology in our country's history is the way that white enslavers would use Christian theologies of heaven to justify the abuse of black enslaved people and assure them that if they were good, obedient slaves, they would be rewarded in heaven. But if they weren't, they wouldn't get in. And so you can see how, in that extreme example, promising somebody heaven was a way of justifying and brushing aside and not addressing horrific violence here in this life. We see that play out at many different levels. So many people who are deeply invested in the reward of heaven are not invested in the well-being of this life or this planet. Lots of people who are pretty uh, stoked to go to heaven don't care about climate crisis, for instance, because they say, oh, that's okay. This isn't, this isn't the world that we're supposed to live in. God's going to have a new earth for us to live in. And so they just go on burning this one to the ground, eager to get to their mansion in the sky, wherever that is. And similarly, our, our stories, our mythologies that have evolved around this are often terrifying, especially at a young age when you're trying to figure out if you're going to be one of the good kids. Now, not all of us in this community, but many of us grew up with conversations about the rapture. Who here has read or watched the Left Behind series? I see you, tech team. And if you're in person raising a hand or in the comments typing away, I appreciate you too. Now, if you have been blessed to live your whole life never being able to pick Kirk Cameron out of a lineup, amazing, fantastic. Be blessed. Know that you are blessed. But if you have had to engage with left-behind theology, I want you to know that this is one of the modern abuses of heaven theology. Rapture, uh, the rapture is this idea that in the end of times, God will pluck the faithful out of this world, disappear them into heaven, and the tribulations will come for those who remain behind. There's debate about when the tribulations are coming before or after the scooping out. But either way, the important part is that the good people will get scooped out of the sky and whisked off to a blissful heaven, and the bad people will be left behind. That's where they get the name of the series. And that is the threat. The threat of this series is that you will be left behind unless you are faithful and obedient and do exactly as I tell you. And so you can see where that terror would build really quickly. Cameron talks about this sometimes. Our Cameron, not Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron can't shut up about it either, but that's a different story. He's the star of those movies. Our Cameron, Pastor Cameron, my partner Cameron, talks about growing up in a household where rapture theology was discussed a lot, where those books were read and listened to on audio tape over and over again, where the tribulations were debated, where the ideas of who was the Antichrist were regular dinner talk. And all of these wild fantasies about the end of times and God coming to destroy the earth and whisk away the faithful into bliss, they instilled a terror in young little Cameron. Cameron who would wake up in the middle of the night and be afraid 
What if everyone else got raptured away and I got left because I'm a bad one? To assure himself that that hadn't happened, he would run into the rooms of his siblings thinking, well, God certainly would take the babies. God wouldn't leave the babies behind because they're too young to have sinned and been bad. So if the babies are still here, I'm okay and I haven't been left behind. That is the kind of thing that, you know, we tell stories about and we can chuckle about, but like that's terror in the body. That's terror that is passed on to children that seeds into our bodies and lives in our imagination as adults. That if we aren't obedient in the right way and to the right people, to the right interpretations, that we will be abandoned, left behind, left in a world of chaos while the good people have been swept away into eternal bliss. Now, we're not going to go into too much of the rapture, but I do want to give you a resource if you've come out of that kind of tradition. The rapture is bunk. The rapture is a, a pretty recent fantasy. Uh, the rapture is not biblical. It's, uh, I think, indefensible. And my favorite book about the rapture is called The Rapture Exposed, which is like a real National Enquirer um, title. But the sub subtitle is The Message of Hope in the Book of Revelation. You see, most of the rapture theology comes from a, a wild misunderstanding of the book of Revelation, which, I'll be honest, is a little bit forgivable because Revelation is weird and very difficult to understand. But it's also super cool and very political. And so if you want to understand why the rapture theology of, of a very modern American church tradition is bogus— and or if you want to learn how cool Revelation actually is, I really recommend this book. Um, it's by Barbara Rossing. She's brilliant, and it's super good. Also, since I admitted last week to you all that part of my personality is the well-actually Reddit bro, um, if you want to embody that gross energy, you uh, can have this little tidbit. It's not Revelations, as many people think. It is Revelation, singular. So if you want to, well, actually, somebody, please only ingest. You can do it with that. Revelation is super cool. It's, a, it's written in a genre that we don't really have. It's called apocalyptic writing. And apocalypsis is a form of writing that is coded and weird, like laden with wild imagery and, uh, and meant to be confusing. And you'd be like, Jonah, why would the Bible be intentionally confusing? Listen, you got me. The Bible's weird. But the Bible is also written, especially those pieces. There are a couple pieces of apocalyptic writing in the Bible. Daniel, Revelation. These pieces of writing were written by people who were um, under extreme oppression, trying to communicate the truth of political, personal, liberatory, and salvific hope under occupation. And so if they were really bold about saying like, hey, that dude who's in charge, that army who's in charge, those people who have been um, threatening our lives for a long time, they're going to become dust and we're going to have a new ruler and that ruler is God and God's pretty different about how they rule. Um, that wouldn't have gone over very well with the oppressors. And so they needed to put it in this weird image, imagery. They needed the imagery of, you know, wild, fiery, 
eyeballs and creatures with several wings and many heads, like all of these things that come from Daniel and Revelation are symbolic. And they're symbolic because being straightforward would have gotten the authors uh, and tellers of those stories killed. So there's a lot of coded, weird, super political messaging in the book of Revelation. And a lot of it is about real historical figures. Nero um, was a, a figure um, who reigned violence and terror on Christians in that time. And so the stories of God's liberating love had to be told in these coded messages, but they were going to be told because the only way to live in the hope of life and liberation was to keep saying God's liberating love will, will prevail in the end of this. So the vision here is about an apocalypse, is about the end of things as they are known, is about the collapse of the Roman Empire, is about the victory of liberation. But it's very political. It's about real times and places. It also speaks to the eternity of hope. It speaks to what will happen in the end of all things, that God's love will prevail. But it's not a coded message in the way that we think of it now, that like God is sneaking little things into us, our times now, so that we can see something in the newspaper and then be poofed away, you know, in a whiff of, of magic and our souls taken to someplace else. That, again, comes down to a personal fantasy about pleasure and not having to experience pain. And it's highly, highly individualistic in a way that the scriptures just aren't. The teachings of Jesus just aren't. In fact, Revelation itself is not individualistic in any way. One of the more famous verses is in chapter 5, verse 13. It says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever." and ever. This is an image of the redemption of all creation. This is an image of every living thing, every part of God's good earth and beyond, singing and worshiping, being united in God's love. This is a picture of redemption. This is a picture of solidarity and liberation, not individual, but everything. This image is about universal salvation. And it's one of the scriptures that I point to personally when I want to give an understanding of what my uh, belief is in the end of times, that God can and does redeem all things, and that all things will sing the glory of love unified together in liberation. So it's not an individual project at all, and it's certainly not about escape. Now, you could understand why living under Nero, living under violence, living under threat of persecution day in and day out could birth fantasies of individual escape. But that's still not what Revelation is. Barbara Rossing describes um, her understanding, saying, The message of the biblical book of Revelation is not of despair or of war, but of transformation and justice. Its tree of life and river of life give hope for each one of us and for our whole world. Revelation's urgent message to us is one of ethics, 
not escape. And so she makes the case that Revelation is about the setting right of things here on this earth, not an escape away from it. Most visions of heaven actually, actually are about abandoning this earth, abandoning this creation as though it was trash, as though it is spent, as though it is irredeemable. But that goes against all of the teachings. And we cannot just say like, oh, well, climate crisis, who cares? Let this world burn. Or, oh, well, the structures of oppression, the earth will always be sinful, but we'll get a reward in heaven. Like, that's, that's not it. That's not the project. That's not what the scriptures say. Now, this passage that we have from Revelation today, chapter 21, does talk about a new heaven and a new earth. But I, I want you to hear it again in a different way. A lot of times when we hear new heaven and new earth, we think like, okay, this was like the beta test. And now there's like a real heaven and earth over here that we're just going to get like teleported to or like our souls will get sent to and it'll be better. But first of all, I want you to note that it's not just heaven. It's a new earth and a new heaven. So that already puts a lot of heaven theology in a tailspin. That we actually might not be meant for heaven. We might be meant for the new earth. But also, I want you to think about what the scriptures say over and over again. It happens in Isaiah when God says, I am making all things new. And then it happens again at the end of this passage. See, I am making all things new. Now, we understand that to mean not just like, oh, I made this other thing and it was trash, so I made this new one. I am making the thing that is into a new thing. It's about transformation, not replacement. And so when we imagine a new heaven and a new earth, we imagine the transformation of things into what is holy. The taking of something broken, wounded, ill, at, at dis-ease, and healing it into whatever is to come next, the new thing. The new thing that is already here and at work and is coming, the kingdom. And so I want you to think about that what it means for God to transform into something new rather than throw away what is and replace it. And similarly, we think about this disembodied experience, snatching our souls away, that we can abandon these horrible bodies that we have to live in, this horrible earth that is broken and burning. And our souls, whatever that means, can have paradise. But this picture in Revelation is not about clouds and harps and pearly gates. It's about a city. It's about a garden in a city. It is about this earth being reclaimed and transformed with these people and these bodies. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. We have this image. There is a coming together of the heavens and the earth, the city which joins both, that brings everything together, that creates a new kind of intimacy between God and humanity, that distance that we feel that we 
that we ache from is brought closer together and we can be among one another. God will dwell with them and they will be God's people. And God's own self will be with them and be their God. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So intimate. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying will be no more for the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne says, See, I am making things new. I am making all things new. This garden is not in the clouds, but in the city. It is a hope that, it, that is present, that this world can be transformed and redeemed, that oppressors can be overthrown, that the oppressed will be liberated. Revelation is deeply political. It is about hope. But it's not just a personal hope. It's not a hope that I will be plucked from a bad situation and I don't have to worry about the rest of things anymore. Revelation is about the hope that we will all be saved together, transformed, that these systems actually can be toppled, that something new can be built out of them, out of this earth, that we don't need a rocket ship into paradise or some sort of magic being whisked away but that we can all be transformed into something worth living, worth loving, feeling connected and healed. And healing is really the key word here. Revelation, the promise of the end of things, is about being healed, not escaping, not abandoning. It is about the liberation that comes with healing. Healing is not cute. <laughs> healing is not fun. Healing is not skipping to the good part. Healing is a long and often painful process. And we want that fantasy of jumping out of our bodies, in part because it's hard to be alive in these bodies. It's a coping me mechanism. It's not different from saying, I'd like to dissociate permanently, please. But if we are to honor and live in our bodies and to know what it's like to live in this earth, this earth, this creation that is sometimes described as God's body, we have to believe in the redemption and resurrection of our bodies. Now, so many people think about heaven as being disembodied souls, and I want to debunk that scripturally right here and now. When we talk about a new earth and a new body, the image that should be central is Jesus' resurrected body. And is Jesus a disembodied soul? Is Jesus some sort of weird ghost haunting the disciples? No, Jesus has a body, and it's unrecognizable, and yet it still bears his scars. When we believe in the resurrection of the body, we're not just talking about Jesus. You may have heard or said or been required to say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. These are statements of belief that are pretty old, that came together in the first couple hundred years of the church. And I want to remind you what's in some of them. So the Apostles' Creed begins with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Great. Done, done with Father God. We move right into Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and on and on. Then in the third section, we're done with Jesus. Jesus has already been covered. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. We're already done with that part of the creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, 
and the life everlasting. Now, have any of you ever really, like, thought about that? The resurrection of the body isn't in the Jesus part. We're not talking about Jesus' body. We're talking about your body. We're talking about the resurrection of your body and perhaps the body of God, which is all of creation. And that is a part of forgiveness of sins and the life everlasting. Forgiveness of sins brings the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. So in this resurrection of our bodies, this is not life everlasting just for our souls. Jesus was Jewish and was deeply embedded in Jewish theology. And so when Jesus talked about resurrection, he wasn't talking about the Greek understanding of this dualism of like the soul versus the body. In Hebrew, the the words for soul and body are, are somewhat enmeshed. One of the important words is nephesh, which means the breath, or as the Greeks would understand it, the soul, that animates the body. The breath and the body are one and the same. The nephesh is the being, the being who is resurrected. And so we look to Jesus to understand what our resurrected bodies might look like, but we have to remember that the tradition and the scriptures embrace a resurrection of our human bodies. So what was Jesus' body like? Unrecognizable, totally different, also the same. Jesus' body bore his scars. Now, if we imagine heaven with bodies, we probably are imagining what we would consider to be perfect bodies, which, I'll remind you, our idea of perfection is highly cultural and subject to change. So what is an eternally perfect body? Well, we don't know the answer to that, but we know that Jesus' perfect body, Jesus' resurrected body, bore his scars. The body you have and everything it's been through will be honored in the resurrection of your body in everlasting life. So what does that mean for our bodies that feel so imperfect? What does that mean for our bodies that have borne so much pain? What does that mean for our nervous systems that feel so fried? What does this mean for disability? What does this mean for scars, for the tremendous difference in bodies? We don't know. But we do know that we see in Jesus that all of that stuff, scars, disability, body difference, like that won't be erased. God doesn't erase. God doesn't abandon. God resurrects and redeems and makes new. Your body, God's body, this whole earth, will be made new, not abandoned, not forsaken, not ignored, not erased. We can be made whole without erasing who we have been. We can be made whole without erasing or ignoring or skipping over the hard parts. That's what healing is. And healing is my best understanding of what heaven is being healed. We don't get to skip over the good part, or skip to the good part. We don't go over the process of getting there. Redemption is the project, and we have a promise that the end is healed. The end is whole. The end is all pieces coming together, praising God, united in God's love. But eternal life 
It's not individual. It's not an escape. It's not abandonment. It is the transformation of this earth, this body, these bodies, this people into wholeness, into this life and the next. Pain, grief, healing is hard work, but that is the story of creation, and we don't get to skip over it. The creation begins in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, and in Revelation we see in the end another beautiful garden. But the third highly crucial garden in the scriptures is Gethsemane, the garden in which Jesus prayed, the garden in which Jesus grappled with that same pain that we all do. Jesus said, God, take this cup away from me. I don't want to go through the hard part. But if that's what this is about, here we go. Jesus didn't get to skip over that part either. And so we know that when it comes to the pain and the grief, the joy and the opportunity of healing, the hard work, we can't go over it. We can't go under it. We got to go through it. But the promise is that we get to go through it together. The promise is that we go through it with hope. And the promise is that we will find God's love and healing on the other side. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, it is so difficult going through the pain of healing, the pain of transformation, the labor pains you describe in the scripture, God. It is so hard. And yet you have told us that this is the way, this is the path to true healing and to the kingdom. God, may our salvation come quickly and also may we have patience for the journey. God, may your salvation come not just to individuals, but to each and every one of us, each and every part of your good creation. And God, may we embrace not an escape from pain, but the transformation of that pain and suffering into something more beautiful than any of us can imagine. God, you are good. We are putting your, our trust in your goodness. May we have hope and hope eternal. Amen.